Hello, this is Frank Falvey with Frank Pre Presents. And today it's my extreme pleasure to have Eric Lester, uh, candidate for Lieutenant Governor of Massachusetts. Welcome, Eric. Nice to meet you, Frank. Yeah, thanks for having me. Oh, you're more than welcome. I, I want to begin acknowledging that our state representative, uh, Jeff Roy, uh, has endorsed you as the uh, candidate uh, that he hopes to see elected as lieutenant governor. And Jeff is really well respected in the town of uh, Franklin yeah. and his uh, wisdom and, and, and endorsement means a lot to the people of Franklin. So with that acknowledgement, let me ask, who is Eric Lester? Where did you grow up, yeah. Eric? Well, real quick, it's Eric Lesser, L-E-S-S-E-R, yeah. And so easy to remember, lesser of two evils, lesser of more. So my name is Eric Lesser. I live in Western Mass in the town of Longmeadow, which is about 80 miles or so. Uh, west of here. I am a close friend and colleague of uh, Chair Roy, yeah. and uh, I do want to just acknowledge him and thank him for the work he's done. We both chair the Manufacturing Caucus together, uh, which is a caucus in the legislature that works on workforce development and manufacturing policy. And uh, I, he got a very, very important and big piece of legislation done recently around climate change. Uh, the climate bill that the governor recently signed. So he's been a great leader at the State House, and I know um, there's a lot of reasons why he's been well deserved, deservedly well respected in Franklin. Uh, so I'm, I'm proud to have his support. I uh, was, was born actually in Queens, New York. I, I grew up in Western Mass. I live in Western Mass now with my family, but I was originally born in Queens. Uh, my dad. Uh, grew up in the Sheepshead Bay housing projects of southern Brooklyn, uh, one of the largest uh, housing projects in New York City. Uh, a lot of the people he grew up with, um, they had tattoos you know, on their arms, yeah. uh, numbers tattooed on their arms from surviving the Holocaust. My, my mom, uh, Joan Granucci, uh, she grew up in a third floor walk-up apartment in New York's Little Italy. Uh, she shared a bed, Frank, not a bedroom, but a bed uh, with her grandmother uh, until she was in her mid-20s. Mm -hmm. um, I just share this because my parents met at City College in New York, which was described at the time as the working man's or working women's Harvard. Mm -hmm. They paid $54 a semester to get their education. Uh, so my family moved to Western Mass, to Longmeadow, where I live now, uh, because that's where the jobs were uh, and that's where the opportunity was. What was the, what were their degrees in at City College? Yeah, so uh, my dad uh, went back was um, was actually worked as a New York City taxi cab driver uh, and uh, went back to school. Eventually, became a doctor, a family practice doctor. Uh, my mom was a social worker, uh, and they actually opened up a small uh, healthcare uh, office in Holyoke, uh, in Holyoke, Massachusetts, again, sure. west of here, uh, where they did kind of mind and body together. So, um, you know, they had a, sh they put out, put out a, put out a shingle and, um, you know, treated everybody. Um, grandparents, parents, kids would all come in together, uh, and, uh, and they did that for, for several decades. So did you go to school in the Long Meadow area? I did. I went to the Longmeadow Public Schools, and uh, actually, Frank, it's a big part of my story for getting involved in politics. Uh, the first time I ever did anything in politics, I was 16 at Longmeadow High School, uh, and there was an assembly call by the principal. Uh, he packed all the students into the room, lined a whole bunch of teachers up at the front of the room, and told us that they weren't coming back next year. They were being laid off because of budget cuts that had been made at the State House. 
And I remember sitting there and just feeling really angry, you know, that 14 and 15 and 16 year olds were being asked to pay the price for bad decisions, frankly. And what year was this? Yeah, so this would have been uh, 2000, 2001, give or take, maybe maybe 2002, mm -hmm. uh, early, early, early 2000s. Mm -hmm. uh, and I remember actually we, we went out and we did a uh, Proposition two and a half override. Uh, we went on, knocked on doors, handed out leaflets. And Frank, I'll never forget uh, the night of the election. Uh, I was sitting in the town hall as the clerk was counting the ballots. And uh, she eventually announced that the vote had passed. And there was a woman sitting next to me, and she was literally clutching a pink slip. And when it was announced that the vote had passed, she ripped that pink slip up and threw it in the garbage uh, because the vote passing meant her job had been saved. And it was just an early lesson for me uh, that I'm very grateful for that I kind of learned in that moment that despite the messiness and the frustrations of politics, it, it really is one of the best ways to make a difference. Uh, and so from there, I, I caught the bug um, and I left home, went to, went to school, uh, got my education, and then I got wrapped up in the camp. Where did you go to school? Uh, I went to Harvard for undergraduate, uh, studied in uh, studied government, had a degree in government uh, from Harvard, and uh, that was where I um, got wrapped up in the campaign of this uh, skinny guy with a funny name from Illinois, uh, Barack Obama. My uh, first job for him, my big break, was um, helping drive him all around New Hampshire uh, during the first in the nation primary. Uh, I was then put in charge of carrying all the luggage around and doing all the logistics, uh, first in New Hampshire and then nationally. I traveled with him to 47 states uh, during the 2008 uh, election campaign uh, and eventually went to work at the White House. Uh, I worked about 40 feet from the front door of the Oval Office uh, for David Axelrod. I was David Axelrod's assistant who was mm -hmm. President Obama's senior advisor uh, and then later went to work for the President's Council of Economic Advisors. Of Economic Advisors. Yeah. So we did a lot so of economic you, policy work. <laughs> yeah. Did you uh, take economics at Harvard? Uh, I, I, my, my degree was in government, but I did take a lot of economics classes. And if you remember, Frank, back in 2008, 2009, 2010, the single biggest issue that President Obama was really wrestling with was the Great Recession uh, and the response to the Great Recession. So you had to become a pretty quick study of economics uh, to, to kind of work on those, on those topics. Uh, and I'll tell you, it was just an incredible learning experience uh, working for the Council of Economic Advisors. You, it really felt like you were absorbing a PhD every day in terms of just the volume of information that was that was coming at you. Did you have a chance to uh, come across and talk with um, the Secretary of Labor, uh, who ran for governor of Massachusetts? Oh, Robert Reich? Robert Reich. Yeah. So uh, I, have, uh, I have interacted with Secretary Reich. Um, he, was a, he was Labor Secretary for, for Bill Clinton. Okay. Um, uh, but, I, but I know him from Massachusetts and from his campaigns for, uh, for governor. Uh, but uh, I worked most closely with uh, Austin Goolsby, who was the chair of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. Uh, also worked very closely with Christina Romer uh, and Peter Orzag and Larry Summers. Uh, uh, who are part of the core economic team supporting the president. Are you married? 
I am. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, the proud husband of Allison. Uh, she has her own uh, career. She works. Um, she has her own uh, law practice in Springfield, and uh, we've got three little kids. Uh, we've got How old a, are they? So I've got a nine-year-old daughter, uh, Rose, uh, who's about to enter fourth grade, uh, mm -hmm. and then I have a five-year-old daughter, uh, Nora, who's about to enter kindergarten. So we've got a busy fall in front of us, and then we've got a 16-month-old. Uh, uh, toddler uh, David, uh, who's uh, who's the youngest member, and he's just walking now and running around, and uh, it's a lot of fun. So where did you meet? Uh, so we actually met in in D.C. Uh, yeah. She lived in a house uh, with a group of uh, five girls about around the corner basically down the street uh, from uh, from the group house I was sharing with four with four guys and so we were the pair that lasted we'll put it that way <laughs> <laughs> Eric what was your first elected position yeah so um after I uh, finished working at the White House I, I came home uh, to get my law degree I went back to Harvard for my uh, for my law degree mm -hmm. and I jumped into a campaign in my hometown for state senate uh, it was a five-way race. Uh, I ended up winning by 192 votes. In a five-way um, yeah. race. In a five-way Democratic primary, and then we had a tough general election after that. Mm -hmm. um, I was the youngest candidate uh, by far, uh, but we were really, Frank, campaigning on a message of bringing new energy, bringing new ideas uh, into state government. Uh, and so got elected in 2014 to the state Senate. I've been, been there for eight years, uh, and we've worked on a lot of Know, really important and really exciting issues that I'm you know, really excited to work on as lieutenant governor as well. How do you evaluate someone that ha is running for the same office you are that has come up through city government, okay, and, and their background and experiences in city government versus you who have come up through the legislative government? Yeah. Why, why do you believe the legislative process is better suited to be the lieutenant governor. Well, first, Frank, you know, I certainly recognize and celebrate all all the candidates in this race, and they all have good experience and, and good messages. I would say there's a few things that distinguish me. Uh, first, I do have experience with cities and towns. As I mentioned, I got my start in town uh, in, in town elections and in town policy with my schools as a citizen. Mm -hmm. I wasn't an elected official. I was a kid in the schools who saw a change that needed to happen and worked to make that happen. For people who might not be familiar with the area of Massachusetts I represent, uh, I represent the greater Springfield area. Uh, I represent two cities, Springfield and Chicopee, and then seven towns, uh, including one without a stoplight. Uh, I have some of the densest urban communities in the state. I also have some of the most rural. Um, I have a, a Do traditional- Do you go all the way to the Connecticut, New York corner? No, I, I go to the Connecticut border at Long Meadow and East Long Meadow, which borders Connecticut. Uh, right. But and then I go up to uh, Belchertown and Granby, which is uh, you know just shy of uh, Amherst. Jim uh, uh, McGovern, who used to be a federal representative yeah. in Franklin, yeah, a good friend of mine. Is, yeah. Does he cover your area? Uh, it's my my Senate district is in uh, Congressman Neal's district. He's a, a, a big okay. big big endorser of mine and, and supporter okay. of mine, the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. But Frank, I want to just go back to your yeah. question because it's an important distinction go ahead. among the candidates in this race. Uh, I bring up my Senate district because I work closely with with mayors uh, and with cities that have, you know, challenging urban urban 
issues that need, need it focus and attention. I also chair our Gateway Cities Caucus in the legislature, which has brought me to all of our uh, gateway cities across the state. Uh, I also uh, work a lot with rural communities uh, and rural issues, uh, which which do require attention in Massachusetts. Sometimes people forget uh, that we have rural communities. And Frank, I think actually my experience, both the federal experience and the legislative experience, are going to be the right the right complement, the right uh, the right team we're going to need at the state house right now. I've I've worked on and have helped implement significant policy that has impacted the lives of everybody in Massachusetts. Just a couple... Well, then why don't we begin with yeah. what committees have you served on and maybe what committees have you chaired? Yeah, so I currently chair our Economic Development Committee, uh, which oversees you know, a lot of the workforce training programs in the state, uh, also oversees a lot of the municipal infrastructure programs, including MassWorks. Uh, we also do a lot of the development um, and incentive programs, vocational education, really the meat and potatoes of what kind of makes our communities run, provides jobs and opportunity to people. Jeff Roy and I together chair the Manufacturing Caucus, uh, where we work to lift up advanced manufacturing, the trades, vocational education, workforce policy, uh, really important issues. I also chair, as I mentioned, our Gateway Cities Caucus, uh, which is a collection of legislators from the two dozen gateway cities in our state, Chelsea, Revere, <clears throat> uh, Gloucester, uh, Springfield, Holyoke, Pittsfield, Chicopee, Worcester, uh, and help give voice to those communities uh, in the legislature. Uh, so. I've been the chair of many uh, conference committees, uh, in, including uh, three economic development bills, the five-year extension of, the, of, uh, um, of Governor Patrick's life sciences legislation that helps spread the life sciences industry out to more communities. Um, so we've worked on, on policies that have you know, really helped the whole state. And in particular, Frank, I've worked closely with Attorney General Moore Healy on implementing a lot of that agenda. Well. As Lieutenant Governor, one of the interesting things is you're going to be the chair of the Governor's Council. Yeah. Uh, and the Governor's Council, uh, the Governor recommends judges, not just court judges, but workman's compensation, all, all sorts of people in administrative judging positions. How are you going to process the best people for the cabinet positions yeah. for judges. What is your going? What is your nuts and bolts yeah. uh, way that you're going to make sure that we have the best people running uh, state government? Well, I appreciate that question, Frank, because it's a really important and I think often misunderstood part of the lieutenant governor's portfolio, which is chairing the governor's council. And as you mentioned, just for people that might not be familiar with it, the governor's council uh, confirms all judicial nominations made by the governor, also uh, is required to confirm pardons and commutations uh, made by the governor. I think I'm well suited uh, to chair that body. Uh, as we mentioned, I'm an attorney. I'm also the vice chair of our Judiciary Committee in the Senate. And when I worked for President Obama, Frank, I was involved in two Supreme Court nominations uh, for Elena Kagan and for Sonia Sotomayor. But my and question is, how are you going to choose? Right. Well, and, I don't and, choose. So to clarify, I don't choose the judges. The governor nominates. But you would work, what I would do is. But you're working with the governor. Right. How is the administration going to vet and, and choose the best people? Are you going to 
are you more interested in diversity or are you more interested in education and experience? I don't think those are mutually exclusive. So let me uh, just explain how I would approach it uh, because, again, I've had experience working on this on a federal level. So a couple of things. One is we do need to diversify the bench in Massachusetts. It's an important goal. But it's not only the bench. I, I want to clarify yeah. this. Um, my question is the broad overall whole executive uh, oh, like cabinet position. appointments. Cabinet oh, I'm appointments. sorry, you were asking about the governor's council, which is judges. Right, so, but yeah. I'm, I'm using that as a, a base that you're going to be completely on a day-to-day -day basis involved in. But I'm asking yeah. the overall question, how do you see the administration that you're going to be yeah. part of? Okay, <clears throat> you know, obviously the MBTA and the board, who goes on the board, uh, would be very much in Franklin uh, passengers' minds. Yeah, I know, absolutely. So you bring up a good point. So let me just walk Go you through ahead. the criteria on appointments. First, you have to understand the governor makes the appointments. The lieutenant governor is there to support and to help provide guidance, help provide advice. And the framework I would bring to it is a couple things. One is as a threshold issue, you have to have people who have excellent experience and are prepared and well qualified to do the job. That's a given. Uh, but we also need to be mindful of the perspective people bring to the roles. So diversity is important in many respects. Uh, we need racial diversity, we need gender diversity, but something important to me, Frank, as a Western Mass person, and I think you were alluding to this with Franklin too, is we need regional perspective. Uh, so we need people from different regions of our state serving in these core policy-making roles because our regions are different. You know, you, you've got issues in Franklin that are different than issues in, in, in Central Mass or in Western Mass or on the Cape or in Boston. And you need a broad cross-section of the state represented when decisions get made because it impacts everybody in the state. So for example, with the MBTA, it would be good to have someone who, you know, does a lot of commuter rail riding, right? Because uh, that's pretty relevant uh, for Franklin or who, um, you know, is, is not in the necessarily the core MBTA service system of the T, but part of the broader bus service, ferry service, uh, commuter rail service. Take a topic like uh, Department of Education. Uh, we have a lot of unique issues around regional schools, regional school districts, unique issues around vocational schools uh, that also should be represented, and certainly issues that are unique to, to more urban districts and unique issues to rural districts. So I think you've got to be mindful of the appointments you're making and who's around the table, that you're bringing in uh, people that have diverse sets of experiences that have diverse and kind of complementary expertise to each other. And that's where you make the best decisions because you're truly working on, on, on all perspectives. And the other piece is it's good to have people with you know, maybe different ideologies too. Uh, something I've admired about Governor Baker is he's a Republican governor, but he has many Democrats in his cabinet. And I think it's important if there's a Democratic governor to include other points of view as well because you get to better outcomes that way. Uh, you get to better policy that way by uh, by bringing in lots of different viewpoints and perspectives and then working through them in, in, in common purpose. Mentioning education in the western part of the state and regional, and I gather you have uh, regional technical schools. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, 
I'm a graduate of, of Boston English, and today they have different components of health, maybe a building, uh, computers, where they actually certify people at, in certain areas. I guess if you're working in a health area, you can get a certificate for I don't yeah. know, certain items. If you're climbing a ladder, I never knew this, but there's certificates of how high you can climb the ladder. Is that being stressed in the western part of the state? Are, are you, are you uh, looking at, uh, in your regional schools, not only of teaching, but building in stepping stones that people can go yeah. out and uh, say, I have certificates in this area? Well, it's, I'm glad you brought this up, Frank, because it's something I've, I've done a lot of work on. Uh, I chaired um, a, a commission called the Future of Work Commission. It was a blue ribbon commission, 17 members from across government, academia, public sector, private sector. We had many business leaders on it that was looking at this question of how do we prepare our current workforce and our future workforce for the, for the demands and the skills that right now are in very short supply. And one of the biggest recommendations that came out of that is the move to what you're describing, which is sort of stackable credentials. Mm -hmm. You know, the era of clocking in, you know, at age 18 for a two-year degree or a four-year degree and then clocking out and then walking into a company for 30 years and never, um, you know, never having to go back to school or do training again is, is passing. The, the new era is going to be kind of iteratively and and step-by-step step building skill sets out. Maybe there's a new software program for a, for a machine, for a machine tooling shop, right? Or there's a new way to clock inventory at a store using digital or software components. Workers are gonna to need to be able to, to build their skills over time. So we've done a lot of work um, at our community colleges. There's a great uh, nonprofit in Springfield called Tech Foundry uh, that I've done a lot of work with that does, it's almost like a, like a, like a, like a patch model like for Boy Scouts, like, a, like a, you, you go in and you do a couple weeks on one topic, you know, maybe one specific skill, you get the certification, and then yeah. you, and you go and you build as you go. Yeah. And the, the, the great thing about that is the employers and the companies like that because they can go to the training centers and they can say, we need these three skills. Somebody can get trained in those three specific things and then they're right out making money and, and, uh, and, and at a good job right after that. Were you in the uh, legislature when they passed the, the compromise bill where they eliminated uh, overtime on Sundays, they established uh, a permanent sales tax holiday, and uh, they, uh, they passed uh, year by year a dollar increase till it reaches $15 an hour? Were you in the legislature when uh, that passed? It also included a, a historic uh, paid family uh, medical uh, sick yes. time uh, provision. Uh, so yes, I was. Yeah, that was described as the grand bargain. Yeah. That was the yeah the legislation. I think that was a lousy bargain. One of the things that you're going to have to deal with now is that when you ra are raising the minimum wage to fifteen dollars, you never in put in anything about inflation. So I expect right now, okay, that probably the average wage is over fifteen dollars. Right. Yet the minimum is not there yet. Right. And I probably the the cost of living for someone 
is no longer anywhere near $15 an hour. It's probably more like 18 or $20 and an hour. And that's where you see a lot of the postings now are in that range, you know, for, for, yeah. for, uh, you know, for service jobs. So, so and, and I never agreed with a sales tax holiday. And I never agreed that you, you, you eliminate it permanently, right, overtime for retail workers, particularly food workers, on a Sunday. How do you see that grand bargain in review? Well, the, the, there's elements that are strong. There are elements that maybe need to be revised. The nice thing about a legislature is you can go back and adjust. We've repeatedly adjusted the minimum wage over time, and we still can. And you know, you're right that uh, Frank, that the inflation we've seen, the impacts of COVID, have have distorted the job market in pretty significant ways. Which, you know, is arguably a good thing. People are, of course, getting paid more, which is good. Uh, but we we probably should revisit that and catch that up. But you, you did leave out a key part of that, which is very significant for working families, which is the paid sick time. Uh, which was especially important during COVID and was one of the most important policy goals uh, of, of, of unions, of uh, working people, of groups that represent working people for a very long time. And I can tell you that you know the area I represent is a blue collar area, an industrial area. I would get horrible, you know, deeply emotional pleas from workers who had a sick parent who had a child they needed to take care of, who themselves would get sick, and there were no provisions or protections from them for them uh, at their at their workplaces. I thought that was immoral, uh, and I think that we now maybe will look. We will soon look back on that and say, how did we ever have a situation in our state where we didn't guarantee those protections for people? So, it's a compromise. You know, the, it was it was actually I think an example of how you work with a lot of different people, with a lot of different perspectives, and try to get to a place that helps the most people. And we can absolutely go back and revise the minimum wage. It's been revised many times. Uh, it's meant to be revised as the economy and, and situations change. But the win on paid sick time was a very, very big deal for people. I know you don't have a lot of, of Massachusetts state highways particularly out in your area? Oh, I live at the intersection of I-91 and I-90, so I, <laughs> I got a lot of highways right where I am. <laughs> right. But around here, there's 290, 190, 495. Uh, there's a lot of highways in Massachusetts. As an old guy, okay, <laughs> I like to know where the restrooms are. And there's none. Yeah, it's true. And, it's true. and, and it's part of the division of tourism. Yep. Why isn't this being addressed? You know, it's a good question. It obviously predates me. It's been that's been the case for a while. I'll tell you that I mentioned I ninety one and I ninety. Mm -hmm. The Mass Pike does have rest, you know, rest stops uh, pretty regularly along the route. Interstate ninety one that's a total highway, right? Interstate ninety one doesn't. Four ninety five doesn't. Ninety five doesn't. So um, I think it's something we should do. Uh, and the, the 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 way that the opportunity we might have to get it done is. We have all of these new provisions in place for electric vehicle charging. So we're going to need infrastructure, certainly for restrooms and for tourism, but also for electric vehicle charging as more and more electric cars come on the road. So I think it's, it's, it's necessary for a lot of reasons. We need the charging space. We need the restrooms. It's good for tourism. And it's something I, yeah, I'd be happy to take on as lieutenant well, governor. Well, the electrical vehicle charging, isn't that best handled uh, 
in giving uh, local building permits for uh, places that are, are retail stores or manufacturing, isn't that best handled by saying that you have to have so many electrical charging places for this type of uh, manufacturer, this type of uh, area of retail? I think you need both. Yeah, I mean, you've you've got you've uh, you've got gas stations in retail areas, and you have gas stations right off the highway. So the gas stations not, are not going to be a good place to recharge your car battery. Well, if I mean, on the Mass Pike, you've got electric vehicle stations that at this point have gotten become very popular. So we'll see how it shakes out. But uh, we'll get you the bathrooms, Frank. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, I am worried. I am worried. I mean, it's been years and years. You know, I testified before the Ways and Means Committee, and doesn't happen. Um, mentioning highways, you're probably not that familiar with 290 and driving on it because you come uh, in uh, uh, probably 90 or or, uh, or or you don't come you don't come down 495, but coming down 495 to turn on to new 290. Are horrendous backups. Yeah, the road needs to have two accesses, uh, at you know, to, to get on at the same time. Have you tried to do anything about correcting that? Well, not that specific spot. Although it's certainly something we can we can work on and look into. What I can say is more broadly about congestion, which is a big problem in Massachusetts and contributes to skyrocketing housing prices, skyrocketing rent, and just overall stress for people is a couple things. First, we need true statewide rail service. Uh, I've been a champion over the last eight years on connecting our state uh, by high-speed east-west rail. Imagine if you could be connect Pittsfield, Springfield, Worcester, Boston, and the communities in between by rail service, along with the South Coast project to Taunton, New Bedford, and Fall River that's currently underway. It would matter in Franklin, too, even if Franklin's not directly on the route because it would take thousands of cars off the road. Uh, it would also help clean our air by reducing greenhouse gas emissions. It would create thousands of units of housing that's oriented towards transit and walkable and affordable for families. Uh, and it would help create thousands and thousands of jobs. So all of these issues are connected to each other. Uh, I think we need to do a lot more around, around combating traffic and congestion because it's a big quality of life issue for people. The more we can do to improve access and speed and affordability on the commuter rail will also help with reducing congestion. And there's a lot of great experiments happening around you know, better rideshare services, you know, expanded use of HOV lanes, where we can certainly expanding lanes and, and expanding um, on-ramps and off-ramps. But you know, the key thing is, is we've got to give people alternatives to, to driving that are convenient uh, and, are, and are affordable and are reliable. And that's going to be the single biggest thing we can do to reduce traffic. Franklin Mass downtown train station is not handicapped accessible. Yeah. Now, basically, that's somewhat of a federal problem because the federal law says you don't have to put a handicapped accessible in unless you spend 25% or more. But it's also, in my opinion, a state problem. Why can't the state say under the disability laws you must make all train stations or bus stations or whatever. I mean, I'm sure this problem is in Western Mass. No, it's everywhere. Everywhere, yeah, yeah. right? Why? I mean, here is 
an egregious, yeah. an egregious problem for those with a, a physical handicap disability that seems that the state could fix. No, it's, there's honestly no excuse for it. Uh, it sounds like a great thing for us to work with the legislative delegation on. I can tell you I was involved with um, helping with handicap accessibility at Union Station in Springfield, which is our large, mm -hmm. uh, our large train station. We're, we're decades past the, the Americans with Disabilities Act. There's no excuse for it. The state has the money. Uh, you know, we have the ARPA funds that have come from the Biden administration. We have a surplus revenue. Uh, that's absolutely something that should be fixed. Frankly, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure why, you know, Governor Baker or the governors before that didn't make that more of a priority. But certainly as lieutenant governor, uh, that's something I'd take on. We'll come back for the construction, uh, for, the, for the ribbon cutting on the, on the handicap accessibility. It's something pers personally very important to me, uh, having done a lot of work. On, uh, on disability policy and having worked with the community in my own in my own in my own Senate district quite a lot, there's just no excuse for it. Going back to my Connecticut, New York, <laughs> I was out in the west part of the uh, state, uh, you know, vacationing. Where'd you go? You know, I went to Sturbridge, I went to Pittsfield, Lenox, and I went south uh, to some antique shops. And I, I'm not sure where I was. Okay. But I, I know I was pretty close to the Connecticut. Did you go to Brimfield? No. Okay. No. <laughs> but I come to a bridge on a state highway. Uh, it's one way, okay? The, the bridge is only one lane. And, and, and you know, traffic has got to stop and go. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with the bridge I'm talking about, but... Even, where was it? Do you remember what... Yeah, it was... <laughs> It was, I was headed toward Connecticut. It was near where the intersection of New York and Connecticut meet, and I'm heading south toward that area, uh, where I was in North. But even from someone from the eastern part of the state, I was only concerned that what's happening? Are we not funding uh, in the western part? Are we not funding basic? I mean, I even told Jeff, you know, boy, if this bridge ever comes up, Jeff, really, vote <laughs> yeah. for it, because yeah. it's an absolute need. Is this a typical problem in transportation in the western part of the state, though? Well, you've brought up a, a, an important point here, Frank, and it's something that I think is particularly important for having a lieutenant governor from a different region, right, from Western Mass, which has been historically underrepresented. Just a quick point on this. There are well over a dozen candidates running for governor, lieutenant governor, secretary of state, auditor, attorney general, all down the line. I'm the only one, there's not a single other person for any office running who lives past 495. So this is an important issue. Have there have been they in have the been past, but not, but not the currently. Past. The last governor, well, Jane Swift was the last governor. She, of course, was the lieutenant governor who became governor. After that, you'd have to go back to Foster Furcolo. No, but even, even um, the Democratic governor that was in Milton, he, didn't he move to the western part well, of the he, state? Well, he, he has a, a vacation house there, yeah, in, in the Berkshires. Right. But he lived, he lived in Milton when he was running for, uh, for governor, Governor Patrick, yeah. yeah. Um, so on the point on, uh, you know, on the bridges, 
I'd point people to a, a really compelling report that Suzanne Bump did, the auditor, uh, that looked at this issue of underfunding of infrastructure, especially in, in central and western mass. And it documented the fact that the bridges are far out of date, the road funding is, is, is done in a, in a kind of unfair way because the communities have smaller population but quite a lot more road miles, which is much more expensive to maintain with a smaller tax base and population base. And uh, it, it is a big issue. Just an example to this point, Frank, there was a bridge in my district uh, that connected two communities. And the bridge uh, became structurally unsound and had to be closed. It was a seven-mile detour for people to go around to, to find an alternative way to get across. Uh, they, one of the constituents that wrote to me, they kept a car parked on the other side of the bridge uh, so that they could go around and, and, and jump in that car uh, to, save, uh, to save the ability to have to, to have to ferry back and forth. So it took years to get it fixed. Uh, and part of it is it's hard to get attention in some of our lower population areas. Uh, and I think that's a another reason why having geographic perspective uh, is, is important. It's not unique to Western Mass. The Cape faces this, the Merrimack Valley, uh, Southeastern Mass uh, face it, faces it. It's important that we have a team and an executive uh, branch that's really speaking to all our regions. Now, let me, my observation would be there's not major highways that we're talking about when we're talking about uh, Western Mass and roads. It seems to me the problem is more with, with kind of semi-major roads and local roads being kept up in, in smaller local bridges. Uh, I, I don't see a huge need to build major uh, I-90s or uh, uh, 190s, am I wrong, or, or is that? No, that's generally right. I mean, the, the, the big interstate highways are maintained on a, on a, on a different formula, so, right. so there, there's less regional variation and there. And you really don't um, need a major highway, particularly in Western Mass. The more of the need is for smaller highways. I, I would say, you know, the, the bridge issue is first a lot of right. state, a lot of state right. roads. Right. There's a lot of state roads that do, that are well trafficked because right. we have big pockets of areas where there's no interstate highway service. Yeah. So people do rely on those state roads mm -hmm. and certainly the local roads too. Another thing, this is kind of technical, but you, you, you do seem to, to be in the detail on policy is culverts, uh, which is something that I think people don't think about. But a lot of, you know, streams, smaller, smaller, smaller scale kind of water, uh, um, you know, uh, you, is done through culverts. And these are often, you know, state roads or, or very local roads. I'll just give you an example. In Belchertown, which is a community I represent, you know, partly because of climate change and increased weather events, uh, one of the key culverts under a, a key a key road was washed out, closed the entire road, major disruption uh, for the community, very inconvenient for people that had to get to work, had to get to medical appointments, had to get to school. And, uh, and it was an example of, you know, the culvert was, was probably too small uh, to handle the, the, new, the new flood risks we've got because of climate change and, and, and powerful weather events. Just replacing and fixing all of those, and there are thousands across the state, mm -hmm. is a major, major project and a, and a significant investment. Well, let me ask this. Uh, you're running on the Democratic ticket. The Democratic Party for the last number of years has done away with an invocation 
and a benediction at its convention. In the town of Franklin, we have just instituted a fee for runoff uh, rainwater uh, coming uh, on in previous services and are charging the residents. Now, for religious organizations and nonprofits, because it was part of the tax formula, right, they weren't, they weren't charged for this. Now they are. So religious organizations and uh, nonprofits now have to pay a fee for the impervious services they have. It. We seem to be moving much more to a secular view and in a secular way of, of taxing and moving, you know, sewer and water fee has been moved from the tax roll to a fee. So we seem to be moving much more to a fee base, which doesn't require any override, yeah. does not require any vote, okay, of the citizens that how it's going to be affected. Do you see that as the new political way uh, of raising uh, local money? And, and, and do you agree with the with the charging of nonprofits and um, religious organizations? Do you see your, your administration as supporting that type of move in that direction? Well, let me let me address the issue about the fees first because that is a big issue, and you're seeing it happen all across the state, right? Which is uh, tacking on all types of fees. I mean, I've got two kids in the public school system in in my town. A third is on his way. He's he's only 16 months, but you see it in the schools. They start adding fees for athletics, for music, for art, for all these different activities that used to be part of the the core service that was offered, uh, field trips, you know, it, it kind of goes on and on. And certainly you're now seeing this with trash fees, with, yeah, with, with CSO runoffs, with, with all kinds of different issues. I think it's an example of towns are struggling because the local aid formulas have not been updated in a long time. Uh, the state has not kept pace with inflation and with the true costs communities are facing for maintaining their infrastructure. And so I think it's, it's, a, it's a symptom of a, of a bigger issue, which is that the state is not providing the kind of support to communities uh, that they need to fully pay for their services. And so I would take this on. Uh, this has been a big priority of our Gateway Cities Caucus. I've filed legislation uh, with um, uh, Tony Cabral from New Bedford uh, over several years to update the local aid formulas to avoid this exact kind of thing. How about and the on nonprofits? Yeah, so yeah, on the on the nonprofits and religious organizations, I'm a, I'm a I'm a religious person. Uh, I you know I, my faith is very important to me. I'm Jewish, uh, and um, you know we're very active in our Jewish community uh, where I where I live in Longmeadow, uh, and I see the important role. That religious organizations and nonprofit organizations pay, or play, excuse me, in our communities. And I would, what I would say is, is we've got to be se sensitive to the limited budgets that they have, and the very important roles that they play in strengthening our communities. So, you know, frankly, I wouldn't like to see fees on anyone, but I would certainly like us to take to try to do everything we can to make accommodations for nonprofits organizations that are on very limited, uh, you know, very limited budgets. We're running down on time, so uh, Eric L Lester. 
Yep, Senator Lesser. Yeah, Senator Eric Lesser. Eric Lesser. L E S S E R. Next Lieutenant Governor. Uh, quickly, what's the question that I haven't asked you that you very briefly would like to say something about? Uh, well, you know, I I don't know. I mean, I think we covered a lot of ground, Frank. I mean, I think, uh, you know, maybe, you know, I would just offer the perspective of, you know, the we talked about the regional uh, experience, but also the the ability to have been making statewide policy in our Commonwealth for a number of years. I think is going to be an important perspective uh, to bring to the lieutenant governor role. You know, working with the legislature is a really important part uh, of having a successful administration, uh, and I think I could uh, could play a role with that. So, I also love to talk more about my kids, but that's uh, that's so, probably a topic for another show. <laughs> um, you're you're running for lieutenant governor. How can people reach you? Yeah. So I'm easy to access on my website, ericlesser.com, www.ericlesser.com. People can also email me directly, eric at ericlesser.com. My phone number, 413-526-6501. Can we but repeat that and go slowly? 413, that's our Western Mass area code, 413-426-6501. Uh, but all of it and is on my website. Web. All all the kinds of info website. is on the website. Eric yeah. Lesser, E R I C L E S S E R dot com. And all of that is on the on the website. Yep, all the contact info is there. Uh, people can begin voting uh, by mail. Uh, the uh, Secretary of State has sent out a ballot a request for ballot. You have to request a ballot uh, in order to vote by mail. Uh, in most communities, is a week before. The election is on uh, Tuesday, September 6th, is yep, it? exactly. Day after Labor Day. Day a tough after day. Labor Day yeah. uh, is the election primary day. Uh, here in Franklin, you need to vote at the uh, Franklin Gymnasium at the high school. Probably the hours are something like 6 to 8 o'clock. Uh, I believe it's 7 to 8 p.m. Yeah, 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. Uh, here in Franklin, or you can actually go down to the uh, town clerk's office and vote, uh, and uh, you can check with her uh, as to the hours and the days that that's uh, in place. And we really want to do a couple of things, encourage people to look at who is running and the qualifications. Uh, and uh, I, I hope you're uh, successful in uh, your endeavor. And if you are the, uh, the primary uh, candidate on the Democratic ticket for Lieutenant Governor, please come back and we'll do this uh, again and in more detail. Absolutely. Yeah, look, thanks for having me, Frank. Appreciate thank it. You, yeah, thank you. This is Frank Falvey with Frank Presents uh, thanking you for watching and we hope uh, you're in uh, good health and but more importantly we help hope that you will vote one way or another, male, person, on election day, whatever, but please be an informed voter. Thank you. Thanks again. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, appreciate it. This program was made possible by your Franklin friends and neighbors.
good folks just like you. Thanks for supporting Franklin TV. And thanks for watching.